Well, good evening. On behalf of all of us here at LifePoint, we want to wish all of you a very, very Merry Christmas. Thank you for choosing to worship with us this evening. I'm Jim. I'm the lead pastor here at LifePoint, and it's, uh, it's just a privilege to welcome you tonight. There's no story like the Christmas story, is there? Uh, I, for one, uh, never tire of hearing it. I, I love Christmas. I'm actually kind of a Christmas junkie, truth be known. I just love Christmas. And during this season here at LifePoint Church, we've been talking about a necessary tension that's got to be held in balance when we read or when we hear the narrative of Jesus' birth. It's, it's the tension between what I've been calling otherworldly mystery and this worldly history. And by otherworldly mystery, I, I mean the intersection of the miraculous with the mundane, the intersection of the supernatural with the natural, the intersection of the divine with the human, the eternal with the temporal, the, the fact that from the beginning we encounter angels in this story, suddenly and unexpectedly appearing to regular people, um, delivering really startling personal messages to them from God, from heaven. We read about ancient prophecies rapidly being fulfilled. And modern skeptics, critics of the story, the Christmas story, the miraculous elements in the Bible in general have have suggested that if we could just remove the miraculous from the story, then we might arrive at something closer to the truth. But the reality is that if we attempt to relieve the tension in the direction of otherworldly mystery or in the direction of this worldly history, we end up in the wrong place. When we move in the direction of otherworldly mystery, then we have to relegate the story to the realm of mythology or fairy tales, fables, children's stories. And if we remove the miraculous from the Christmas story and relegate it to mere mythology, then here's what we don't have. Here's what we don't have. We don't have a Savior. We don't have forgiveness of our sin. We have no means of being reconciled to God. We have no hope of eternal life beyond the grave. The other side of that tension is what I'm referring to as this worldly history. And by that I mean that the gospel writers meant for us to understand and accept this story in all of its mind-blowing detail as something that really happened to real people in real time. The Christian faith is rooted firmly and necessarily, in history. That's what's so striking about the appearance of, or the experience, rather, of the shepherds on that night near Bethlehem. The intersection of both otherworldly mystery and this worldly history is demonstrated with vivid clarity. First First of all, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. 
And the angel stepped through the thin veil that separates heaven and earth. They saw him with their eyes, the eyes in their heads, not just the eyes of their hearts or poetically the eyes of their imaginations. They saw him with the eyes in their heads. Simultaneously, the Bible tells us that the glory of the Lord shone around them, which means that they were literally surrounded by, enveloped in the physical manifestation of the glory of God. And again, they saw that with their own eyes. And what they saw elicited a visceral reaction. They were petrified. They were terrified. I mentioned this past Sunday that, you know, we, we sing songs that say, Lord, show us your glory. And, but, but if it really happened, <laughs> we wouldn't like it very much. And then the angel spoke to them. The shepherds heard the voice of the angel. He spoke to them. He announced the birth of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He instructed them regarding where and how and when they would find the newborn baby. And suddenly, the shepherds again saw and heard an angel army praising and worshiping God. It was a spiritual experience to be sure, but it was equally a tangible sensory experience. It's notable, I think, that that when the angels went away from them into heaven, each of the shepherds, you know, they, they didn't just lay back on the grass and say, whoa, that was awesome, you know. Well, they might have done that for the moment. Some of them might have said, whoa, I just I thought I'd, I drifted off a, a little bit there. I, that, was a, that was a weird dream. Now, that's not what happened. The fact is that they had all seen it together. And their mutual experience translated into, co- into overt action. They said to one another, let us go. Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that's happened that the angel made known to us. And arriving in Bethlehem and finding a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, Luke tells us that the shepherds related to Joseph and Mary and whoever else may have been with them what the angels had told them. In other words, they're, they're telling their story already. And they're telling it to Mary and Joseph. And we don't know who else was there that night. There, there may have been a midwife. There may have been others. There may be, have been relatives or friends. There, there may have been others there. The shepherds are telling their story. It's interesting too, isn't it? I mean, the angel says, you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And like, okay, we have to comb an entire city to find that. But they found that. They found him. And then it says that the shepherds returned. And and notice the phrase. It says, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. And then there's this final tag, which was just as the angel had told them. You see, unless we entirely reject this story as mythology and file it under the heading of fairy tales, 
then we have to affirm that what the shepherds experienced was not merely the product of fertile imaginations. It wasn't merely the product of mass hallucinations. It was intellectually discernible. Something specific had been told them during their experience with the angels and their subsequent experience bore it out. No wonder that many years later, the the witness of those who had followed Jesus throughout his earthly life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, was still rooted in what they had seen and heard. No one expresses this with greater clarity than the Apostle John in the opening lines of his first letter, known as 1 John. Listen to to verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, this is John speaking, now one of Jesus' disciples. That which was from the beginning, speaking of Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have beheld and our hands have touched, This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now, I don't want you to miss what John is saying here. The apostles, the 12 that were closest to Jesus, and the other followers of Jesus had a concrete, personal experience that took place neither in fantasy nor philosophy, but in space and time. And it involved the senses. He mentions here in this short passage the sense of hearing, vision, touch. Twice in the short paragraph he asserts that the proclamation of the apostles is rooted in what they had seen and heard, So that their proclamation, what they were announcing, what they were preaching, if you will, is given in the form of firsthand eyewitness testimony. They're simply talking about what they personally experienced. They had time over the three years that Jesus was with them to observe, and not only to observe, but to come to reasoned conclusions about who Jesus was really is. Check out the specific phrases John uses in this paragraph to describe Jesus. In verse 1, he is that which was from the beginning. He is the word of life. In Greek culture, the word was, uh, the word that is translated from is is logos, and, and it means not only a word, it means the, it means the central principle of all of existence. It's kind of the answer to what's it all about, Alfie. That's the word. The organizing principle of all that is. That's that's the way John is describing Jesus. The word of life. In verse 2, he's the eternal life which was with the Father 
and has appeared to us. So what's John saying? He's saying at least three things to us tonight. First, he's saying that Jesus is from the beginning. Uh, That is to say that in the birth of Jesus Christ, eternity intersected time and space. In the baby born in Bethlehem, the, the eternal God personally entered the world inhabited by human beings. Second, he's saying that his entry into our world was a real entry. That his physical appearance was not an illusion, but that in him God took upon himself real humanity. And third, John is saying that Jesus is the word of life because he defeated the power of sin and death and the grave. Because he can bring us from death to life, because he can transform our mere existence into real living. See, when Jesus was born that night in Bethlehem, his mother wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Strange accommodations for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. His birth was first announced not to the aristocracy, not to the powerful, the connected, the rich and famous, but to nameless, powerless, marginalized, poverty-stricken shepherds. Strange mailing list. And let's be reminded tonight that Jesus was born to be the savior of the poor and the wealthy and everyone in between. There there is no one too low to be excluded from the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God that Jesus came to make available to all of us. There is no one too high and no one too low to not need him. But he must be believed. He must be believed. He must be personally received. You don't become a Christian. You don't become a child of God, a member of his family, because your parents were Christians, because your parents believed, or your grandparents believed, or your aunt and uncle believed, or one of your family members was a preacher. You don't become... A Christian by association through church membership or connecting yourself to nice people. You don't become a Christian by accident. You're, you have to have a personal relationship. You, you have to make a personal decision regarding Jesus. And my prayer for each of you on this Christmas Eve is that you will believe the message, that your belief will translate into meaningful action and that you'll receive Jesus as your Savior, your Rescuer, your Deliverer. Jesus, who is Christ, the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this evening for all that this evening means, all that it encompasses in our calendars. And Lord, we, we, we put a lot of pressure on this day in so many ways. 
But Lord, we pray tonight that we would not miss the point, that we would not miss our opportunity to respond to you as you extended to us in the person of Jesus Christ the opportunity for our sins to be forgiven, for us to be reconciled to God, that we would have life abundant, that we would have life eternal, that we would have hope beyond the grave. Lord, let this Christmas be truly merry because you are in the midst of it. And we pray it in the name of your Son, whom you sent to be our Savior. Amen.